Pulse Audio Podcast Network. Part of the Boundless Audio Podcast Network. everyone i hope you had a wonderful night or you know at least you're semi-awake and conscious are you at least ready to hear about some badass women from history that you probably haven't heard of do i have to keep my eyes open no thank god and then we're, we're good just open your nap. ears i'm gonna take a nap grab a glass of wine because this is whining about history the women's history podcast where we talk about women you probably haven't heard of i'm kelly i'm really tired but I'm so cozy. Uh, so for those of you, I'm also Emily. Sorry, I should probably say that. For those of you who can't see it, RB2RA, <laughs> we are having a cozy, cozy day over here or laundry day or whatever you want to call it. Yeah, this is um, pandemic chic slash laundry day slash it's Sunday and I'm not showering or leaving my house. This is our theme because it's cold and rainy outside it's and honestly being cozy as hell just sounds like the best thing and you can't see it but now you're going to I got my comfy ass socks and knockoff Crocs on. What up? I'm just wearing my UW River Falls sweat- yep. sweaties. That's the other thing you wear when you're having a lazy day like your old alma mater or like school yeah. sweat. Just like baggy t shirts. You know what I, I almost just snapped my bra strap on. <laughs> oh shit. Oh, never mind. That was just my mic. Sorry. Or my headphones. I suddenly couldn't hear anything. It I was scared like, me. It's fine. It's because my headphones are crap. Uh, I almost wore okay. So growing up, I went to St. Matthew's Catholic school and my mom found an old St. Matthew's sweatshirt. It's just like a little like not not even hooded yeah. like it's just the it's, most, it's yep, a basic I, 90s yep. sweatshirt and she found it she's like I'm just gonna get rid of this I was like You're you like, are no. not I almost wore that I but have, then I thought we were gonna come off as more catholic school instead yeah. of cozy <laughs> that's have, not what I was going for I don't for. think I have any of the sweatshirts anymore I don't think they would fit me but I do have like an old volleyball shirt that was like probably 20 sizes too big when I was <laughs> in middle school and I use it as a like a t-shirt a, like sleep in t-shirt yeah a few holes in it yeah but yeah it's a St. Odelia's and then whatever my number was 69 no <laughs> <laughs> I bet I bet they will not allow 69 as a sports number in parochial schools probably not it's like it's like floors in a building they go 12 14 15 like, they won't do number 13 because it's bad luck. They will not do 69, and they will not do 666. What a fucking shame. So did you know if you're dialing mom on a phone, it's 666? Because <laughs> M-O-M, they're, yep. Oh, I my God. the other day. Okay, can I just say, I, I don't want to be a mom, but that, I was like, Okay, but like maybe I do want to be a mom. I was like, what's a, what's a fast way to like find my mom's phone number? Oh my and god! I was like, oh, that makes right. me so happy. Well, uh, so we are whining about history. We whine about women from history you probably haven't heard of. While drinking wine, sometimes I have our coffee mugs. I'm tired. I don't know where I am right now. I'm <laughs> Emily's just like I'm gonna redo I'm Kelly's in, entire. I'm intro. in my cookie pants. I'm in my cookie pants with the elastic waistband. 
these pants, they even like kind of do the maternity thing. Like I can fold the waistband oh, yeah. over or up to cover my belly. I'm like, what are you talking about? Your cookie pants. Well, my cookie it's pants. The pants you eat cookies. They expand and... to hold all the cookies. Um, but yeah. So if you are wondering all the visual references we're talking about, you might be a new listener. And we do monthly... <clears throat> try <laughs> patreon videos where we add the v to our a and we record what we're doing and <laughs> we make a lot of really inappropriate hand gestures we touch each other and ourselves um it gets real uncomfortable we do dress up themes we've done villains we've done harry potter we've done a crap ton of stuff and today we are doing sunday laundry pandemic chic Yay. slash cookie pants so if you want to see, but ironically, not recording this on a Sunday morning like last I, time, dude. We were going to though. That was where yeah, I first we came up with the idea. I'm like, I'm just gonna roll out of bed, and whatever's happening, that's what's happening. But if you want to see any of this, you can donate for as little as one dollar a month and any get access it. to this oh, and a bunch of other sweet ass bonus Patreon content. We are also working on a new Patreon bonus content series called what? Whining About Ellipses. And the ellipses will be filled in every month with a different random topic that we're just going to get drunk and whine about. Maybe it's body image stuff. Maybe it's religion. Maybe it's whether or not a hot dog is a sandwich or a taco. We'll fucking find out. But we can't today. Fucking taco. Because I'm not supposed to drink. Don't come at me. Yeah, Kelly is recovering from her minor surgery, so... Did you know that when I worked at the daycare, we were technically... Oh, fuck, that doesn't look minor. A minor surgery. That's horrifying. Who did this to you? <laughs> a doctor. And a Why? Nurse. They're supposed to so heal. I don't get cancer. Well, fuck. <laughs> That's the no, only were, reason. They were very, very nice. And nurse, if you end up listening to the podcast, I forgot <laughs> your name, but you were very nice and you were very wonderful. Oh, that's awesome. That's awesome. But she yeah. was like, what hobbies do you have? And I completely forgot to mention the podcast. And then like five <laughs> minutes later, I was like, Oh, yeah, and I have a podcast. I don't know how I forgot about that. But speaking of minor surgery, did you know when I worked at the daycare, we were technically not allowed to remove slivers from kids' like hands and stuff because it was considered minor surgery. That's interesting. Um, You know what? Let's just say I never sent a kid home with a fucking sliver in their finger. Are you fucking kidding me? Like, what am I gonna do? Yeah, that Perforate kid's just an artery? Scream all day. If you oh don't my fix god! It. Well, and what we were supposed to do was put a bandaid on, let the parents deal with it, and I'm like, <clears throat> infection. That's what killed the dinosaurs. Not on my playground, motherfuckers. I mean, you could put some like neosporin on it. We, we did not have neosporin. We had nothing. Neosporin. We didn't have alcohol. We had jack shit. <laughs> Which is probably why no one wanted us doing minor surgery. Yeah. They're like, mm, this is not a sterile environment. Dude, I can keep, I'm I'm permitted to keep at least 10 kids alive by myself, but God forbid I remove a sliver. I have to know how to keep, bring a child back from the dead with CPR and administer an EpiPen when their throat is closing up. But I am not equipped to remove a sliver. That is a bridge too far. Like, I think there should have been like a stipulation. Like, if the sliver's actively sticking out of their finger, you can remove it. Yeah, I did. If it's like, dig uh, into yeah, exactly. a kid's like, skin. if it's under the skin, you don't, like, that should have been what the rules said. Like, if you can grab it with a tweezers, it's fine. Anything beyond that, put a Band-Aid on it. Lawyers, thank you. 
Anyway, uh, so today, because Kelly can't drink, I decided to bring back the my jammy root. This sounds so sexual. It's my jammy root. It, oh, it's jammy red root. That still sounds very sexual. I didn't pick up on that last week. My d- uh, Okay, you know what? For everyone who has a period, you're having your jammy red root. Bottoms up, bitches. Now I'm glad I'm not drinking. <laughs> Only someone who's been actively peed, shat, and bled on can drink to that kind of statement. <laughs> it's more, I don't want what's going into my mouth being referred to as period blood. That's no, more. It's, that's why you call it a jammy red roux. Yes, but that's, never mind. Never it's, mind, Emily, who are you whining about? <laughs> oh, crap, am I going first? Fuck, okay. Well, today... Oh my God, what is wrong with me? I didn't write the name at the top of my notes for the first time in three years. Anyway, doesn't matter. Today, I'm whining about Princess Caribou. Sorry, what? And this would be so appropriate if I had a caribou cup in front of me. I want caribou coffee. Dude, oh my God. I treat myself to caribou if I'm like up late the night before Mm -hmm. or, you know, having a really early morning. And it hits differently. It just, it really hits differently and for those of you who are not from you know the blessed midwesterners caribou beats starbucks ass into the ground starbucks is swill don't get me wrong i will drink it if that's all that's there because it's the caffeine i'm after i'm chasing that caffeine dragon but caribou is superior so i was in i was visiting my sister the other day and when we actually we were at my grandma's and between my grandma's house and my sister's house, there was a Dunn Brothers, a Starbucks, and a Caribou. <laughs> and when we left my grandma's, I was I was talking to my husband, and I was like, I need some caffeine. Like, can we go somewhere and get coffee? And I guess after we left, my my grandma and my sister were, like, debate, like having a conversation and debating, like, which one we would go to. Because Caribou was the only one that was actually, like, kind of out of the way, but not by yep. much. And I'm no, like, you go to I'm Caribou. Like, I'm like, no, the answer is all, if Caribou is an option, <laughs> the answer is always Caribou. I won't stand for many brands, but I will stand for some Caribou. I love Caribou. If only to piss off anyone else who also feels very strongly about their coffee chain. You know how, like, I feel like it's a very... Maybe it's a Western thing, but I know it's an American thing to have a beer that you're going to fight for. Like, no, this is the beer. This is the only beer. And I will fight you over it. That is how I am about my coffee. Mm-hmm. I just I just need to have one to root for. Yep. And mine and is caribou, caribou, the sassy northern underdog. So anyway, I'm talking about the princess of my caffeine addiction. Yay. Princess Caribou. Not spelled like the animal. It's C-A-R-I-B-O-O. Which like, ah, Caribou. She my Caribou. boo. Caribou. Caribou. She my boo. All right. So I'm going to take you across the pond to the village of Almondsbury in Gloucestershire, England. Gloucester? Come no, at me, I England. Think it's Glo- Gloucestershire. I do not think it's that because that's phonetically correct. I and I know it's not phonetically correct. I think it's Gloucester. Anyway, we're going so to Gloucester, just England. Take the Shire out completely. You take out ninety percent of the syllables. I mean, like I can it, it's see like you're Gloucester saying it, in there. It's like you're saying it incredibly but there's quickly. There's a whole word that they don't even say no, if that's how you say it. Because here's the thing: the British they do not have the time because they're fighting off the Normans. 
They are uh, colonizing the world. They do not have time for all those fucking syllables. Anyways, keep going. Which is a shame because they have a beautiful accent. I want to hear more syllables. Also, if you don't like my English pronunciations, bring me to England and teach me. Do it. So anyway, we're in Gloucester, England. The year is 1817. As far as I can tell, things are pretty quiet in this provincial town. It's the kind of place that Belle from Beauty and the Beast would dance through singing about how basic everyone is. There's the bitch with her Starbucks and her infinity scarf. <laughs> Except, you know, it's 1817. And the hipster with the handlebar mustache. <laughs> In the baggy wool hat, even though it's 90 degrees. Anyway, but on April 3rd, a mysterious stranger would change everything. The village cobbler was cobbling away, as cobblers are wont to do, and that's someone who makes shoes. Not delicious desserts, which is incredibly disappointing for his wife, who was misinformed. (laughs) God, I married the wrong guy. She's like... Wait, the baker? I thought he was into weed. Fuck! (laughs) This was false advertisement. So he was cobbling away when there was a knock on his door. And when he opened it, there stood a strange, mysterious young woman whom he had never seen before. Which was saying something, because I feel like this is the kind of village where everyone knows everything about everybody. Including what their polyps look like. So the woman, perhaps, in her mid-twenties, was dressed exotically and take that to mean whatever you will in this in this frame of reference exotic means eastern asian so so she was wearing a black gown with a muslin frill a red and black shawl draped around her shoulders and a turban wrapped around her head and on the back of her head there were strange markings in her arm she carried a small bundle that contained soap and a few coins Any attempts the cobbler made to communicate with the exotic-looking woman were thwarted as she was visibly disoriented and speaking in a language he didn't recognize, which in Almondsbury was weird. (laughs) We're like, I, I don't know, I feel like in the United States, we have such a multitude of people of different cultures and even like there's cultural dress and then there's different styles of dress and like if I see someone wearing something I haven't seen before speaking a language I don't recognize like I don't even know if I quite register it anymore and this dude's like holy fucking shit (laughs) so after some expert charades the cobbler realized like that's all i can think of the cobbler realized the woman was asking for food and shelter which is you know probably what most people carrying practically nothing are looking for when they knock on your door she's like have you heard the word of god see she wasn't wearing a white button up and a black tie so he's like i don't know what this is about you're not wearing the designated knocking on my door uniform So he invited her in and fed her bread and milk. Tired from what appeared to be a long journey, the mysterious woman wanted to sleep. Bitch, same. Dude, on my way here, I was like, I could go for a fucking nap. I know, that's what I was thinking about. I I complained to Justin. I was like, like, you distracted me too long and now Emily's here and I can't take a nap. Yep. This is the tragedy of our day. However, by this time, the cobbler's wife... Mrs. Cobbler, she has no yeah, name. Mrs. Cobbler. Who was uh, ill-informed about her husband's chosen occupation. She was involved and she was getting super anxious about letting this stranger into their house, which is fair. 
Like, this is a time where I feel letting a stranger into your house isn't that big of a deal. And she's like, this is how people get murdered. Maybe don't. Go, Mrs. Cobbler. So she decided that it was time to take the woman to a man named Mr. Hill, whose formal title was Overseer of the Poor. What a thing to have on your resume. Yes, this was in fact a position that you could have in old-timey England. It was his job to take people suspected of vagrancy, meaning like being homeless, poor, generally just like bumming people out with their presence. Taking them out of town. Yeah, well, he had to take them to the justice of the peace to be tried for the act of being broke and homeless. Like, I mean, this is, I okay, I don't know for sure, but it used to be you could be arrested for being homeless and then they charged you for them having you in prison for not being able to afford shelter. Yeah. What? The past was the worst. Dude, I hear people talk about how inmates should be charged for their stays. Like, oh, the tax. I'm like, no, we used to do that. And it was fucked up. <laughs> like, they don't have any money. Here's the other thing. Maybe we should focus on rehabilitation to prevent recidivism. But no, we're so, like, hard up for just being shitty and well, wanting vengeance. It's, Here's it's the thing. The, it's because prisons are privatized. Also super racist. All right. That's the, the whole justice system. That's not just prisons. So, um, yeah. So she's, she's going to be taking someone to be tried for not having a house and being a beggar, I guess. So the overseer of the poor passes the woman off to the county magistrate named Samuel Worrell and his grand estate called Knoll House. It's so nice it has a name. I need to That's come how up. you know when people are like rich and fancy. I need to come up with they, a name. Their house, their, you know. Yeah. One, it's called an estate. And yes. two, it has a name. I need to come up with a name for my house, but nothing has felt quite right except maybe Crow's Corner. But I don't have enough crows because my, my dogs chase them away. Yeah, you can't name it that then. Okay. Does this dude have a bunch of gnolls running around? Probably. I don't think. No, he does not. I mean, a I refuse is to also believe a that. Hill, so maybe it's on a hill. No, it is that. so flat in Almondsbury. <laughs> Gloucester is flat as fuck, and I'm saying this as someone who has never been there. But I'm going to say it with the authority to make you believe me. Isn't that what we do now? We just shout until people are like, "Fine, I guess." Fuck I'll find me. You in, jeez. Uh, so Samuel and his wife Elizabeth were captivated by the mysterious stranger and tried mm-hmm. to determine who she was and where she came from. Natural. Yeah, I mean, like, I feel like that's understandable. Yeah. So Samuel had a Greek valet who knew several Mediterranean languages, and they hoped that he would be able to determine what the woman was saying, or at least, like, narrow down her area of origin. That makes sense. Yeah. He couldn't understand her either. He's like, I have no fucking clue. So and not he, from the Mediterranean. And he Check. said, and he said, I have no fucking clue in like 10 Mediterranean languages. J- just to really just, drive the just point in home. In case she understood just the swear words in a language. Yes. <laughs> Which like those are the first ones we all learn. Of course. So while the language barrier made it difficult uh, to communicate, they were able to determine that she called herself caribou because she kept pointing to herself and going, Caribou. Caribou. Motherfuckers. <laughs> <laughs> so Samuel Elizabeth sent, set Caribou up with a room at the Bull Inn 
which is still there. The Bowl Inn. In lovely Almondsbury. Uh, it has a 4.4 star rating and 848 Google reviews. And I went through the Google reviews to try to find some that were funny, but they were all just so fucking delightful. The English know how to leave a five-star review. And the business responses are even better. So to one review, they replied, it's so lovely to get some beautiful feedback when our lovely guests visit. <laughs> we are absolutely thrilled. You had such a great time and look forward to your next visit. Smile emoji. Have a lovely day and thank you again. The bowl in blush smile emoji. Like, oh my God, wrap See, them that's, up. That's when you look for the lesser reviews because if it has a 4.4, not everyone left a five star I review. did. Okay. I didn't include this. Because it didn't feel relevant, but I feel like we've come to that natural crosshairs. Uh, there was one star review I found, and the person was bitching because they ran out of beans or something, <laughs> and the hash browns specific. were too greasy. And again, the business responded. Super nice. They were so nice, and they're like, we're so sorry that you're experiencing. And they were like bitching about the portion sizes. They weren't big enough or something. I'm like, come to the United States. If you don't think the portions right. are big enough. Um, but the business responded like, oh, you know, we're very sorry to hear that you had a, you know, a negative experience. As we did inform you and apologize, we ran out of beans due to supply chain issues. I'm like, yeah, because that has been our lives since like, how can you Pandemic. get mad at a business for running, just like straight up running out? Like, obviously the beans are that good. You're just salty. You didn't get any. But again, like really lovely response. So oh, that's funny. Definitely uh, booking our trip there. So one of the common compliments in these Google reviews is uh, that the inn's decor is lovely. <laughs> and at the time that Caribou walked through its doors, framed herbology illustrations were all the rage. So the decor, again, was still lovely back in the 1800s. Mm. So it, one in particular seemed to catch Caribou's attention. A drawing... Of a pineapple under the sea, SpongeBob SquarePants. <laughs> I've had too much wine. Shut up. No. Her eyes lit up with recognition of the popular children's theme song, and pointing to the picture, she said, "Nanas," which, and I looked this up to confirm, is an Indonesian word for pineapple. Hmm. There you go. Just Indonesian. Don't know how anyone in fucking Almondsbury knew that but in every article i read they said she said nanas which is an indonesian word for pineapple and i didn't say indonesian because there are many indonesian languages right no i get it i'm covering my ass it's fine so caribou also displayed behaviors and customs that seemed odd to the small town village english residents she would go to the roof to pray which she did while holding her hand over her eyes preferred to sleep on the floor like she she looked at the bed and she's like the fuck is this shit and just slept on the floor and only ate vegetables there was another note that she only drank tea and i'm like how is we're in england that wouldn't be weird are you how is that notable in any way shape or form nevertheless caribou had to be taken to nearby bristol and tried for the crime of vagrancy vagrancy it also didn't help that apparently one of the coins in her bundle was fake and i'm like and part of me is like was it really fake or was it just one you didn't recognize from a different country it's it was like a hay penny or a half penny or something and it was it was described as bad or fake so Hmm. 
There are a few different ways that the story goes, depending on where you read it, but the more or less version is Caribou was found guilty of being a beggar, and she was sent to St. Peter's Hospital for vagrants. Yay. Yay. And you know that was just really lovely. She got all the help and support that she needed. All the patients there were incredibly well taken care of, and there was no rampant abuse at all. In the hospital, or perhaps after she was released... Uh, or kicked out, who the heck knows, she met a Portuguese sailor named Manuel Ineso. Now, Manuel could understand Caribou. Yay, Manuel. Which, like, holy shit, everyone's like, fucking finally. And he translated her story. Yay, Manuel. Caribou was no vagrant beggar. She was, in fact, a princess. And as he said that, a choir of angels began singing. Right. In that ex- a little golden crown. In that like, exact flat tone. Head. It was beautiful. Everyone was very confused. So Caribou had come from the island of Java Sioux, where she was a princess. Yeah. One day, a band of pirates arrived and kidnapped her and held her captive on their ship. As they do. As they do. You know, we've all been there. At some point during the long voyage, allegedly long voyage, because that's a Really far away away from England. Yeah. Uh, Caribou saw her opportunity to escape and jumped overboard in what happened to be the Bristol Channel, where she swam ashore. After wearily wandering the English countryside for six weeks, she finally found herself in Amundsbury. This blew everyone's fucking minds. And it explained Caribou's exotic experience and customs. The villagers were excited and honored to house a visiting princess, who also there must have been an element of like, oh my God, we're saving her because she was kidnapped by pirates and we're so cool. I'm surprised no one like just threw her in a fucking madhouse and was like, you're clearly insane. Yeah. I. So she was invited to stay at the world's estate, Knoll House. Which was suspiciously absent of knolls. And no, it was not. And people from all over England spent the next 10 weeks fawning over Princess Caribou. (laughs) Academics visited. Oh, shit. I didn't even try that. It just seeps out of my pores naturally. You could could milk me for puns. That sounds disgusting. Slink rubbing in my pores. Keep going. (laughs) No. So academics tried to learn about her kingdom and culture while society folks like pinkies up super fancy threw parties in her honor. There was like a ball. There was a soiree. There was other fancy words for rager. Her, she delighted villagers with her customs of swimming naked, using a bow and arrow, fencing and praising to Allah. So weird. It was such a novelty to them. They're like, yeah. they like probably again, never met someone. Now, from middle, if from I, East. I'd be like, um, yeah, I don't. Whatever. Swimming naked feels amazing. Your dude, water is nature's bra. Your breasts never feel more free when, than when they're just floating That's in true. water. Kelly, can we go swimming right now? Maybe when we're done. Can we go swimming right now? No, when we're Please. done. Please. <laughs> no. She also wrote notes in unrecognizable script, which were sent to Oxford University for study. That's where Fraser Crane did his master's. Yeah. The Bristol Journal published a story about the foreign kidnapped princess and a portrait of her. One academic named Dr. Wilkinson, who had investigated Caribou, 
I, I don't know how he did that. I don't know what the scientific method is at this time. Talking uh, to her. He determined that the marks on her neck or like the back of her head were from exotic surgeries. That word kept showing up. Exotic. Yeah. Yeah. And it just it, it meant, means unknown. Well, and I they meant Eastern. Like there's, you know, there's a weird connotation with the word exotic referring to people of Eastern cultures. And yeah, I mean, I feel like it is also synonymous with unknown back then. Yeah. Let, here, here's the thing. A lot of shit was exotic to the English yeah. of the village of Almondsbury. I could have been incredibly exotic. <laughs> so he wrote... Quote, nothing has yet transpired to authorize the slightest suspicion of caribou. However, (laughs) the investigative prowess of 19th century scholars was fallible, to say the least. In a neighboring village, a woman who we only know know as Mrs. Neal was, as I imagine, Enjoying her morning cup of tea and reading the newspaper before beginning another busy day of running her boarding house. Kelly, are you doing all right over there? Yeah, I'm trying to grab my power cord. <laughs> I'm like, I just see you sinking below the desk. And I'm like, are you getting with anxious? My toes. <laughs> Continue. Okay. All right. So Mrs. Neal, enjoying her cup of tea and reading the newspaper before beginning another busy day of running her boarding house. And she must have nearly choked on her tea and spit it out. But she didn't because she's a good English woman. Uh, When she read the article about Princess Caribou and saw her portrait, Mrs. Neal, she knew exactly who this woman was and she was no princess. Mrs. Neal strikes me as that kind of person who is like a busybody who knows everyone's shit. Like if he, she, she'll come and spill the tea for you any time of day. So Mrs. Neal knew her, knew this woman as Mary Wilcox, a former guest at her boarding house. When Mrs. Neal's account got back to the Worrells, because that's all, there's no social media, but everyone's like an incredible gossip. Elizabeth was initially skeptical Because, of course, naturally, this is the point where she starts questioning what's happening and what people are telling her. She's like, what do you mean this exotic foreign princess who was kidnapped by pirates and swam into Bristol isn't really who she says she is? Shocker. Yeah. So Elizabeth hatched her own plan to determine whether or not her mysterious guest was a princess or a shyster. She arranged for her and Caribou to travel to Bristol under the guise of having Caribou's portrait painted and took her to meet Mrs. Neal face to face. (laughs) Dramatic sipping. When confronted with the accusations that she was not a foreign princess, Caribou broke down into tears and admitted that the whole thing was a goddamn lie. After three months... The jig was up. I mean, wow. She got away with it for three fucking months. Yeah. Mary Wilcox wasn't born on a faraway island, but rather in the village of Witheridge in Devon in 1791. And this was a mere 70 miles away from Bristol. The daughter of a cobbler. Again, those cobblers are coming back. I love that, like... That's who she went to in the town. I, I wonder if she, like, recognized, like, this is obvious cobbler shop. It just right. reeks of shoe polish. Uh, it reminds me of home. Yeah. So she had a falling out with her parents when she was young and left home. So maybe she wasn't, like, I don't know, maybe it was one of those weird, like, 
I hate home, but like I long for it. She made her way across Southern England, working odd jobs until she was reduced to begging. There weren't a ton of educational or employment opportunities for women, particularly young single women, particularly young single uneducated lower class women at the time, just saying. The marks on her head, it was found, were given to her at a poorhouse in London where she received a half-assed wet cupping operation, which was meant to relieve pressure in her head. So this is like a form of... what the fuck is wet cupping? It's a form of bloodletting, and there's actually several different ways to do it. There's like wet cupping and heat cupping. And in this version, um, blood is drawn through suctioning a small incision. That's disgusting. I mean, do you ever... Okay, here's the thing. I totally understand why people did that because when I get those sinus headaches like behind my eye, all I want is for someone to stick a needle into my forehead and drain the excess fluid out. Like that would fix my problem. So I understand why they were like, you just got too much fluid in there because that's what it feels like when you have a terrible headache. So Mary Wilcox made her way to Bristol where she posed as a foreigner as a way of eliciting more sympathy while begging. Mary invented the character of Caribou, the princess of fictional Javasu, because that's not a place, as a way of entertaining the children at Mrs. Neal's boarding house. Finally, Mary decided to take her show on the road until she found herself deceiving the people of Almondsbury. Mm. By now, an assessment of Mary slash Caribou's writing by Oxford University had come back, and the results were that it was total bullshit. It was just this is no language we've random ever seen scratching. Yep. When the news of Mary's deception broke, newspapers pounced on the story, and they had already been covering the crap out of her. But they didn't pounce on her in the way that you think they would. Instead of painting Mary as some evil charlatan, she was admired for her daring, cunning, and ability to fool academics and the elite alike. Even Elizabeth, who had, like, gone to bat for her, taken her in, was, like, really, really drawn into this whole caribou thing. She was initially pissed, but she came to admire Mary's story. She was painted as a downtrodden girl without other options who, through guts and quick-wittedness, fooled the vain and fickle one-percenters. It was kind of like... Uh, kind of true, though. It's an underdog story. It's like this scrappy gal took nothing and fooled the most educated, revered, wealthy, and elite people around. Right. You go, girl. Like, people were like, oh, my God. She totally fucked with them. That's that's great. so mischievous. And honestly, at the end of the day, she didn't profit significantly no, off like of this she wasn't like she didn't hoarding all this stuff and then running away yeah she she didn't trick anyone into marrying her she didn't kill anyone she didn't assault anyone she just they they just threw all these parties for her because they thought she was cool you know so elizabeth in one more act of generosity raised money for mary to sail to philadelphia in 1817 random there, Mary put on a, on a stage play in New York based on the character of Princess Caribou, though the show, show was unsuccessful and short-lived. Because apparently Americans were like, and don't fucking care. Again, like, and obviously 1817, America is very different from now. But again, if I saw someone do it, I'm like, and? Like, you're, you're going to have to do a lot more like, to shock me. I feel me. like America had too much other stuff going on. We, we did. Yes, there was a lot. So, uh, 
But Mary was still all about crafting her own legend, and in her last letter to the Worrells uh, that same year, she wrote from New York complaining about how famous she was. She's like, oh my God, the burden of fame. It's so much. People are like, say is doing so People are stopping me on the streets. They're calling me Princess Caribou. It's like, my name is Mary. I'm more than a character that I made my entire identity for three months. Men are throwing themselves at me. I can't, I can't accept all of these marriage proposals. Yeah, it's just, it's entirely too much. It's very overwhelming. So she, despite her alleged self-alleged success in New York. She returned to England and tried to stage the show in London. But by this time, everyone had pretty much stopped caring about the whole affair. They were like, that that's old news. It was kind of cute. It was kind of funny. And now we've all moved on. Right, like we all lived the real experience of you pretending to be Princess Caribou. We don't need to see a show about exactly. it. Exactly, like the, the trend has passed. At some point, Mary got married and became a widow, maybe, it's a little murky, living near Bristol with her daughter, Mary Ann. She raised and sold leeches to local infirmaries so they could be used for bloodletting, which I thought was kind of funny because she got this, like, half-assed bloodletting herself at some sketchy London poorhouse. Maybe that's why. Maybe she's like, this is safer. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it's also very profitable. They they still use leeches in certain medical treatments. treatments. That and um, maggots. Sterile maggots to eat the dead skin because they won't eat fresh new skin. Yeah, they'll just like take a bandage, cover it in maggots, and like stick it on your open wound, and then the maggots will eat away all the dead, nasty skin. Okay, gross. Like, it's funny. Not a lot of things gross me out, but that does. Dude, I remember seeing that footage in a documentary when I was a child in Illinois, and I was just like... That would just make me feel like a dead body because that's also where you find maggots. I It just made me want to like stick that person's leg in alcohol. Like, straight-up medical alcohol. So just cut your leg off. Like, might actually burn your leg off alcohol. But it's really cool, isn't that? Yeah, like, if they came up to me and they were like, you either have to, like, lose your arm or we'll put maggots on it, I'd be like, cut it off. Cut the arm off. Okay, patrons, if that happens to one of us, do you want us to live stream it? Raise your hand. Good? Okay, cool. Hopefully it never comes to that, but now we know. Never hurts to have a Leeches, plan. Leeches, fine. Maggots, no. But so she's raising or importing and selling leeches. leeches. And uh, the for, uh, the former imposter princess and stage actor spent the next 30 years of her life doing this until she died of a heart attack oh. or a fall or a something. She, she died. died. <laughs> she, she stopped living on December 24th, 1864. Christmas Eve. I know. She was about 73 years old. Not bad. Especially because she had kind of a rough life. Yeah. She was buried in Hebron Road Cemetery in Bristol in an unmarked grave, which, fuck you. Come on, Bristol. You gotta be getting those tourist dollars. I'll give the bull in my money, but I'm not. No, the rest of you? No, absolutely not. So her daughter, Marianne, took on the family leech business until her own death. Apparently, Marianne lived alone in a house full of cats and died in a house fire in 1900. That's a life. That just seemed like there was so much stuff about this. I couldn't determine, but they're like, yeah, but her daughter turned into like a crazy old spinster cat lady and died in a fire. And I'm like, that's very specific. Yeah, right. Like, he, I couldn't fuzzy, not include fuzzy it. on a lot of details, but you're really not fuzzy on that one. But we know her daughter turned into a spinster cat lady and died in a house fire. All right. Hursery headcanon, all of the cats escaped. 
they were fine. Cats are wily like that. Anyway. The cats probably lit the fire. The cats. <laughs> if it was my cat, they would have lit the fire. <laughs> Legacy. So there's a well-known biopic of Mary called Princess Carrie that was released in 1994. And if you're Googling this, that's like the first three search results. It was very frustrating because I'm like, I don't care. I want to know like the real story. A historical novel called The Curious Tale of Princess Caribou by Katherine Johnson was published in 2015. Oh, a wow, French comic real, by... That, that's recent. Yeah, a French comic by Antoine Osnan and Julia Bach. I don't know, it's French. I'm just making this up. <laughs> was published in 2016. Wow. And in following Mary's own theatrical aspirations, there have been several stage musicals based on the story and more successful... <laughs> Has one won Best New Musical and, like, Best Lighting or something at the Off West End Theater Awards. Hmm. So, probably not in the way she was looking for. That's Princess Caribou slash Mary. But Mary Wilcox slash Princess Caribou earned notoriety, you know? And it's just, it's such an interesting story, and I... I kind think... It's a little bit sad. <laughs> it's a little sad. I think it's important to note, too, that desperation can spur people to do a lot of things. Like she really didn't have any options. Her home life for whatever reason was non-tenable. Right. Uh, she tried to work odd jobs, but the 1800s for a single uneducated woman, even like an educated woman, it was a rough place to be. Well, it sounds like she didn't like set out to deceive the people. Like it almost sounded like, Hey, I'm going to go put on this show. For these, the people, like when she left yeah. the boarding house, that's kind of how it sounded like. And then she was just kind of like, oh, maybe, maybe they'll be nicer to me if I, this is just who I am. I really think that, so she was obviously already using the whole like, oh, I'm foreign exotic like thing to elicit more money when she was begging. But I think she just kind of like took her show to the next town over and she already had this Princess Caribou character. Right. And when everyone was so fascinated by her, I think she really ran with it. Yeah. Here is my biggest question. Manuel, the Portuguese sailor, he is the one that told everyone her story. She never spoke English until she was found out. And she completely right. dropped the act. So the question Where is... Where the fuck did that come from? Who is Manuel? Maybe... That's the thing. Maybe she's just like, hey, help me out here. Yeah. Like, did he get money? Like, did, I feel like... What? He, she had to talk, like, speak English to him and be like, mm -hmm. hey, help me sell this story. Because otherwise it just doesn't make any sense. Yeah. It was just... It was so bizarre. And there are different stories as to where she met him. It was either, like, while she was in the hospital or he came to the town and met her... So, yeah, she could have just been like, hey, you also appear foreign, so you can really help me sell this, and I'll, I'll hook you up, or it'll make you special because you are my interpreter now, you right. know? I don't know. But, yeah, this, this whole thing couldn't have been sold without him, and that just blows my mind because either she knew him and this was planned, which I don't think so. That just feels... No, she convinced him. She somehow. was she was hanging out in this village for like ten weeks before Manuel showed up too. Right, or she met him and it just all worked out. And just she she seems like someone who rolls with the punches and makes a shit up as she goes along. And yep, I really I think, think she just exactly went with what it. Happened. But yeah, that is the story, of Princess Caribou. 
the princess of my caffeine addiction. Hey guys, we know times have been tough lately for all of us. And during hard times, it can be difficult if you don't have anyone to talk to or it can be hard to talk about certain topics. Being alone with your thoughts can be isolating. This is why we are sponsored by BetterHelp. BetterHelp offers licensed therapists who are trained to listen to and help you. Talk to your therapist in a private online environment at your convenience. BetterHelp is customized online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist. So you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. Thank goodness. There is a broad range of expertise in BetterHelp's 20,000 plus therapist network that gives you access to the help that may not be available in your area. You just fill out a questionnaire to help assess your specific needs, and then you get matched with a therapist in under 48 hours. That is Amazon fast. Then you schedule secure video and phone sessions. Plus, you can exchange unlimited messages, and everything you share is completely confidential, just like with an in-person therapist. You can request a new therapist at any time at no additional charges. If you want to talk to someone about your mental health, you can get a 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com slash herstory. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash herstory. <laughs> so Kelly, who are you whining about today? I'm whining about Amelia Blandford Edwards. That is a stellar name. I love everything about it. Sticking to England. Sweet. This is a very uh, Anglo-Saxon, English, pinkies up, cup of tea kind of day. So, Emilia was born in June, on June 7th in 1831 in Islington, London. Oh, lovely Islington. With the knolls (laughs) and the tea Um, and the Brits. (laughs) Her mother was Irish and her father was a British army officer who then became a banker. She was educated at home by her mother, but and showed really like promising writing when she was younger. She actually fub- published <laughs> published her first poem at the age of seven, and her first short story at the age of twelve. Okay, if we ever publish something, I'm calling it flublished. Okay, I have published before okay but now you can't call it that <laughs> I've published i'm we are we i will become a published author of something um, of this podcast <laughs> so thereafter so after the age of 12 she wrote a variety of poetry and stories and articles for several like newspapers and journals in the area including like uh the morning post and stuff so she was fairly popular when she was little and several of her short uh story pieces can still be re- found online and read Oh, that's cool. Yeah. Who, how many 12-year-olds can say that, you know, over 100 years later, we can still read the crap they wrote right. when they were 12? Her. Ju- just her. That's it. Um, Mozart? Beethoven? Okay. A lot of those other little genius children. You know what? If you're going to be all serious and point out very obvious comparisons and facts, then I'm just not going to try to be funny anymore. <laughs> I love you. Anyways, so in addition, Amelia took up a second hobby. This was art. She would actually start illustrating her own writings and also paint scenes from other books she read. However, her 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 parents did not like her doing art because they viewed it as a lesser profession. This is, that's the time frame we're in. Okay. That art is viewed as a lesser profession. Writing is fine. 
Art is not. Okay. But has that actually changed? We undervalue visual artists so much. Like it's insane. And we're constantly asking them to give a shit for free and be like, well, I could do that. Then do it. People do that to writers too. Yeah. But visual arts in particular, I feel like, like if someone's going to school for writing, okay. Like I got some pushback because I went to school for writing. But if you're going to school for art, okay, but what's your backup? What happens if you don't become a famous artist? There's a billion different things that you can do with visual arts, especially now with the internet and social media and graphic design. Yeah. Yeah. So, hey, kids, if you're trying to go to school for art and your parents aren't cool with it, you tell them respectfully to go fuck themselves. Right. It was. Tell them Emily told you to say that. (laughs) So not only did her parents view it as a lesser profession, but they also viewed the artist's way of life as being scandalous and you know someone from her class shouldn't do that um and the the negative decision um and the negative like thinking that her parents put on her really haunted her early life and she would kind of stop doing art and she actually would wonder throughout her life if art had been her true calling had she not stopped that breaks my fucking heart So in addition to these other two things that Amelia is already doing, she picked up a third thing because she just likes to. Jesus Christ, Amelia. She picked up composing and performing music. She would would do that for several years until she suffered from a bout of typhus in 1849 that unfortunately left her with getting frequent sore throats, which made it really hard for her to sing, which, which in turn caused her to lose interest in music. And then she began to regret all this time she had spent on it. God, typhus is where you're like throwing up and shitting yourself constantly, right? Typhus is bad. Um, Other interests that she dabbled in uh, included pistol shooting, horseback riding, and mathematics. Okay. Wide variety of interests. Oh my God. Um... Okay. I love her, but I also kind of hate her. (laughs) Like, we all knew... An Amelia in school where it's like, okay, but tell me what you can't do. Right. Well, due to like a crippling illness, I don't sing as much anymore. But when I do sing, I'm basically Lizzo. Fuck you, Amelia. <laughs> in 1851, Amelia became an ed- engaged to a Mr. Bacon, first name unknown. <laughs> because with a last name like that, you don't need a first name. Um. So... <laughs> A lot of people think that she got engaged because her parents were getting older. Her parents were probably worried about her, her economic security. Um, Absolutely no signs that anyone can find point to them like being in love or anything like that. Um, And on the contrary, Amelia doesn't seem to have felt like anything for him. And um, eventually she broke off the engagement. Good for you, Amelia. She's like, you know what? I'm not feeling this. Good for Um, you. It's it having the last name Bacon is a he, serious reason to marry someone, but I'm glad that you realized it wasn't the reason to marry someone. Right. Um, so uh, also in, in the early 1850s, Amelia uh, began to focus basically exclusively on writing now. Her first full-length novel was called My Brother's Wife and was published in 1855, and it was very well received, but it wasn't until she wrote a story called Barbara's History, which came out about 10 years later, and it was a novel involving bigamy, but that really, like, established her reputation, and, like, that's what, like, got her a ton of notoriety, and not, like, necessarily in a bad way. Okay, can I just say, though, 
I love that she went straight salacious. Right. Because when you said my brother's wife, immediately I'm like, this is a novel about a woman whose brother gets married and she's in love with his brother's wife and they have some tawdry affair and there's all these like weird feelings and sex scenes and it's really hot and wrong and all of it's just like, and then I'm like, you know what, Emily, they didn't write like that back then. Just calm down. And then bigamy. Oh shit. Okay. Later. Um, okay. She would spend a lot of time and effort on the settings and backgrounds of her books. Um, estimating that her research would take her about two years for each book she wrote. Holy, holy shit. Um, This would pay off later in life. We'll skip ahead just a little bit. Her, the last novel she ever wrote was called Lord um, Brackenberry, which went on to be published in several different editions. So obviously, like, her research paid off. She would also write several ghost stories, which would, um, which were shorter stories, which would frequently appear in anthologies. Um, and the background and characters in these writings, as well as many of her other ones, were influenced a lot by the personal experiences she had. I, I want to read her ghost stories. Old school ghost stories are a, they're an entirely different genre. They are. You know, like they're just, there's something else. Um, so while Amelia didn't form a emotional or romantic attachment to Mr. Bacon, she did form emotional attachments with several women and basically exclusively women. I call, I fucking knew it. Um, I fucking knew it. <laughs> From the early 1860s, basically once Amelia's parents had died, she met a widow named Ellen Brasher, um, who was 27 years older than her. Oh, shit. Um, But Ellen had, about the time Amelia lost her parents, Ellen lost her husband and her daughter. So they kind of like became companions for each other and they they would live together until um, they died. Aww. Amelia and Ellen. Another significant person in Amelia's life was a different Ellen. Oh my. So she wouldn't screw their names up. She has a thing. She Um, wouldn't screw up their name. She has a type and it's women named Ellen. This was a woman (laughs) named Ellen Byrne, who was the wife of a pastor and school inspector with whom uh, Amelia is said to have entered a love relationship with. So they were, you know, an intimate relationship. I love how they describe that though. A love relationship. The relationship ended when the husband was assigned to a different school district and the couple moved away, which obviously left Amelia very distraught. Um, And while none of the papers that um, the college has directly say that like Amelia was intimate, um, there are letters between a um, homosexual activist named John Addington to a sexologist named Havelock um, that says like Amelia actually like told him like because they knew each other and he was like yeah no they they were lovers yeah also um, can I just say both of her Ellens their initials were E B they were both L and Bs yep so that way. She could get the two for one on the monogram towels and yep. just give them to both of yep. her Ellen. Make it real easy. Dude, she is, uh, that's slick. Right. So it is also said the reason that her husband, uh, Ellen, second Ellen's um, husband moved districts was because he was aware of his wife's feelings and um, was not, you know, down with it. 
I mean, I also wouldn't be down with my marital partner cheating on me. Especially when I'm a pastor. Regard, <laughs> regardless of the, the sex or gender of the, right? the, the yeah, partner. It, like, I just... No, that's not okay. I get that. If you're going to be non-monogamous, it has to be... Both of you have to agree to it. Yeah. That being said, I ship Amelia and all of, all the, of Ellens. the Ellens. All Ellens. So, great, great and wide. Right? So <laughs> while Amelia wrote several books that did really well, um, it is not her novels that are commonly reprinted nowadays, but it's her traveling tales. So at age 30, following the death of her parents, while she was living with Ellen, besides Ellen, she had really little reason to stay in England, nor was, you know, there anyone close to her that was going to criticize her for traveling anymore. Like, she, yeah, she was a free woman now, basically, because her she didn't parents aren't her holding parents. her back. She doesn't have a husband telling her what to do. Right. And the proceeds from the writing that she had been doing were sufficient enough to enable her to kind of live the whatever life she wanted to and go wherever she wanted to. Again, like, I'm really happy for her, but also I kind of hate her. Right. I don't know why you don't travel. The world is so big. Amelia, honey, you need to shut the fuck up. I'm trying to, like, make enough money to eat here. Okay? Okay, right. Amelia? So this is going to be the um, beginning of Amelia's travels on which she wrote, which I actually was able to get, like, quotes from the different books. Um, her accounts are notable for her knowledge of her surroundings, her interest and openness towards the people and customs of other countries, which was not common. Um, and also, she liked to add humor and enthusiasm. Oh, my God. She's a sassy bitch. Right. I love her. So the first place Amelia would travel after... Um, being able to was to the Dolomites, which is a mountain region um, in the Alps. Yes, it is. There you go. You can say the that Italian in, Alps. You can say that in an Australian accent too. The Dolomites. Yeah, but it's not. Dolomites. It's Italian. Yeah, but I can say an Italian word in an Australian accent. How impressive is that? So anyways, <laughs> uh, not Ellen. Amelia would not take an Ellen with her on a trip. In fact, her um, traveling partner was named Lucy Renshaw. And she would, so she took Lucy and they embarked on this trip through the mountains. This was at a time when a male chaperone was considered not only socially, but physically essential for any woman traveler to have with her. But um, Amelia never chose to travel with men. She always chose to live and travel with female companions. Damn right she did. Um, male servants or guides were hired as needed, not necessarily because they were male, but because that's generally what was available. Well, and they knew they knew the area. No, exactly. Like, yeah, it wasn't that they were me- men. It was that's who was available. Exactly. Because um, she's not sexist. Yep. And they they never let the men they hired as guides or servants, like, control their journey. Mm-hmm. Um, so the, the, this first trip to the Dolomites started, they actually started in, like, Belgium and then, like, worked their way weirdly, like, down through the Dolomites. It's interesting. Um, so they, they started with, um, so she started with a book called Sights and Stories, A Holiday Tour Through Northern Belgium. And then they did the the journey through the Dolomites, um, which was mainly at that time unknown to tourists. It was very, it wasn't safe to go like mountaining, you know, so most people just didn't. So this book was called Untrodden Peaks and Unfrequented Valleys. 
I actually really like that. I can think of an unfrequented Exactly. Valley. I'm like, ooh. Um, Dude, everything she writes is hot. So this is- How is all of it sexy? The, this is the introduction to the book, okay? The passages are too long and too fatiguing, fatiguing for ladies on foot and should not be attempted by anyone who can not endure eight and sometimes ten hours of mule riding. So, like, she's like, hey, it's not for, like, the faint of heart. Oh, my God. It's so, together, so sexy. Together, these two women braved flies, mud, cold, heat, poor roads, no roads, resistance from locals, hostile male servants and villagers, and other difficulties and just issues of traveling alone in an area that isn't used to tourists. You just had to throw the cold water on me like that, didn't you? They thoroughly enjoyed themselves, though. They friggin' loved it. And it is clear that part of the attraction of this traveling for Amelia was the challenge of reaching these areas that were new and different and meeting and overcoming these difficulties that she encountered. Yeah, it's it's the challenge. That's why people climb mountains. That's why they try to sail around the world just to prove they can. Right. So then they... So once they... um, Da, 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 da. Sorry, trying to figure out where I am. Da, 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 da. That was the theme music that followed them everywhere they went. Through. Right. Where the fuck is this coming from? So when Amelia was done, she continued writing books about the Dolomites. As as I said, they were terra incognita, and even people of higher standings or ed- education hadn't really read about them. So she wrote the first book, and then she wrote A Midsummer Ramble in the Dolomites. Which is a great name. Midsummer um, Ramble in the Dolomites. Right? She also... Afternoon Delight. Right? So after her <laughs> descent down from the mountains, she would describe the civilized life as a dead level world of commonplace. Basically, she was bored. Yeah. She's like, wow, everyone here is so basic. So in 1873, dissatisfied by the fact that their journey was at an end and they didn't really have anything to do, Amelia and... Um, oh my God, I forgot her. <laughs> Lucy. Lucy. I, was, I only had Renshaw there and I'm like, no, she has a first name. Lucy Goosey. Um, decided just to take a walking tour of France. Um, and however, this was interrupted by like torrential rains that the area was having. And that kind of nudged them to look for somewhere else to go. Can I say a walking tour of France? At first I was like, who does that? And I'm like, actually, that I sounds bet. really nice. I bet that sounds lovely. If I... If I knew the language and I could confirm I wouldn't be murdered, because that, that, that's like my number one fear of any kind of travel, including going to the gas station. Like, am I well, that's be why murdered? you find like a guide you can trust. Yeah, if, if you don't speak the language, but like yourself. just walking across France actually sounds like really a nice. lot of fun. Yeah. I bet it's lovely. So, due to the torrential rains, they started looking toward Egypt. So Amelia and Lucy decided to tour Egypt in the winter of 1873. They're like, where is it not going to rain? Egypt. Egypt. Yep. <laughs> they fell in love, mainly Amelia, um, with the land, the cultures, both the ancient and the modern. They would journey southwards from Cairo and, hi- and hire a Dahabia, which is a manned houseboat. So they were on the Nile. Cool. Um, the cool. two the two women would visit Filet and ultimate ultimately go to Abu Simbel, uh, where they would remain for six weeks. They did run into one other party of English people. Um, it was a painter named Andrew McCullum, and 
a, a female English traveler named Marina Brocklehurst. Brocklehurst. Yep. And Marina and Amelia would become friends and remain actually just friends and remain friends throughout. Um, no, they were actually just <laughs> friends. By the end of the trip, Amelia was absolutely in love with Egypt. She like didn't want to leave. It would become the major work for the rest of her life. Um, and at the same time, she would also realize that like the, a lot of the artifacts that were being taken from like graves, like that really bothered her. That's an incredibly progressive idea for an English woman to have at this time. So in one of her books about her journey, she wrote shocked at first, they denounced with horror, the whole system of sepulchral excavation, legal as well as predatory acquiring, however, a taste for scarabs and funerary statuettes. They soon begin to buy with eagerness, the spoils of the dead. Finally, they forget all of their formal scruples and ask no better fortune than to discover and confiscate a tomb for themselves. I feel very uncomfortable thinking about all that. Yeah. And this is someone who loves to go to a museum and see the Egyptian artifacts. Yeah. I, I have a weird. I do too. Don't worry. It's, it's like, it's fascinating. I love seeing it. Seeing, seeing um, a mummy in real is really. Some, but, I, will, I will say some but, of them have been returned to Egypt and yes. Egypt has said, okay, this is fine to be like a traveling exhibit. But it's just, I, I don't know, like, okay, when I was in, when I was in Denver, uh, I went, we went to the science museum and they had this like whole Egyptian exhibit room and they did have a mummy. And the really interesting thing was that they had the CT scan results where they're able to determine like all these that's interesting crazy, you know, like just incredibly detailed information. And I was just like, okay, this person was born, lived and died and was buried in Egypt. And they couldn't even potentially conceptualize where they are now, that it even existed, that North America existed, let alone like Denver, Colorado, like that's so specific. And now they're in an environment that is so far removed and a time, I don't know, it just, it was that weird, it felt like anachronistic and it was that whole like, if you think, if, this is going to sound really weird, but it's like, oh, if you think of this, this as a person, I'm like what yeah. if this is you, what if in, you know, a thousand years, your body is traveling from museum to museum. Right. I mean, it's different I if might you actually like, be okay with that. Your body to I'd be kind of cool with that. <laughs> just donate your body to uh, body worlds. Yeah. But like, I want to like the whole thing, not just like the little slices, um, which so they have at the Minnesota science museum. Check I, that shit out. It's right now. I don't know if it's right. usually a traveling exhibit. No, no, no. Remember when you and I went to the yeah, Minnesota it's a Science traveling Museum? Exhibit. Was it traveling? Yes. Oh, it seemed it's like there all the time. It seemed like it was just kind of off to the side and wasn't yeah, a big that's, deal. That's where they put like the exhibits that just come through temporarily. Okay. Unless we're talking about two completely different things. We we might be, but they had those like really thin slices oh you're not talking about like the full body world no okay, i'm thinking it was then. it was like thin slices of yeah they've had those forever okay th- that's what i thought i'm like they i thought really you were talking about like the body world's exhibit i'm like no no i've never actually been to that i would do it twice it's great i went to this children's museum in indianapolis and i think they had something like that but it was like Weird. like if it, fetuses if, or something oh, that's part of it i yeah. mean but if like looking at like musculature and stuff bothers you then you don't want to go to it. Yeah. 
Anyways. Where are we um, talking about? So trade in antiquities was largely illegal at the time, but it was highly lucrative. And there was tension and call colonial rivalry between the French and the English who were both exploring Egypt at the same time. The, cl- the political climate in Egypt was unstable. It still is. Uh, once found, once found a site was almost certain to be pillaged and destroyed by the knowledgeable, the greedy and the random passerbys. You know, they used to make paint out of like ground up mummies. Yeah. Like how fucked it. That's it, super it, funny. Cause the next, it's my one next thing, thing to preserve about an artifact for educational purposes. And it's another to like, Hey, look at this dead body. I'm gonna grind it up and use it for paint. Yeah. So Amelia would write in her book, the wall paintings, which, which we had with happiness, the happiness of admiring and all their beauty and freshness are already much injured. Such is the fate of every Egyptian monument, great or small. The tourist carves it all over with names and dates, and in some instances, caricatures. The student, by taking wet paper, squeezes sponges away every vestige of original color, and the collector buys and carries off everything of value that he can get, and the Arab steals it for him. The work of destruction, meanwhile, goes on apace, and there is no one to prevent it. There is no one to discourage it. Every day, more inscriptions are mutilated, more paintings and sculptures are defaced. When science leads away, is it wonderful that ignorance should follow? I think that's a really interesting point, that last line, because I feel like science is viewed as the ultimate good because something is true or it's not. Well, one... We're still trying to figure out what is fact, why things are the way they are. You know, basic elements of our world right. and our bodies we don't know. Didn't they just find like another gland or organ in the back of our throats or no something? Idea. Yeah, like we, we know nothing. That being said, science, like anything can be done responsibly or irresponsibly. Right. And I like that she's pointing it out. Like, yeah, science is leading the way, but, and there's a big ass but, like, and this anaconda don't want none. Don't want none of it. So Amelia, the book that she wrote and self-illustrated was called A Thousand Miles Up the Nile. So it detailed like her whole travel in Egypt. And her travels in Egypt made her aware of the threats to these ancient monuments. And she set out to hinder these through public awareness and scientific endeavors that advocated for research and preservation over, you know, like stealing them. Science, when done right, offered the hope of recording and preserving something of that beauty and history rather than losing it together. Scientific investigation can lead to understanding, not just accumulation of treasure. Why are we still having this conversation? Right? When she returned to England, Amelia was determined to promote the cause of Egyptian archaeology. The field of Egyptology was just beginning to become like a thing and to be like a professional thing rather. And many of those involved were quote unquote gentlemen explorers whose technical expertise and knowledge varied widely in such a climate, a rare gentlewoman might also become involved. Amelia would consult with leading experts and educate herself about the field and form lasting friendships with um, some gifted men that were in the field, such as Maspero and Flinders Petrie. Interesting name. Petrie. No, it's Petrie. P E T R I E, tree. I don't believe you. Okay, <laughs> I keep thinking of the little pterodactyl from Land Before yeah, Time. Petri. Petri. Um, with her expertise in journalism, Amelia was well placed to um, 
you know, a mass public interest and in support of excavation work for preservation. Um, She began planning and promoting the founding of an Egyptology society with someone named Reginald Poole. And it met for the first time in June of 1880 at the British Museum. It became formerly known as the Egypt Exploration Fund, with Amelia and Reginald as its joint honorary secretaries. Poole would, t- Poole would eventually take over the internal administration, while Amelia would deal with the publicity and subscription work. Um, and through the unceasing dedication of both of them, the society was soon able to finance the exploration work of Flinders Petrie, And there was no question that the sound financial status of the Egypt Exploration Fund uh, was largely a result of Amelia's extensive campaigning. You know, okay, so we're still talking about the artifacts that have been pillaged from other countries that are now in, let's just use this as an example, British museums. All right, you know, they were taken a long time ago. They've been the there. The British and the French tend to be the worst because they were the ones that colonized Egypt. And now the these countries who have had their cultural heritage and their artifacts like, stolen them from them, they want them back. And you know what the like one of the number one arguments is? Well, since we were able it to take them in finders keepers. Well, no, it's since we were able to take them in the first place, you clearly don't have the capabilities to keep these artifacts safe. Because like, we were dude, able to just waltz in, this you was know, over a hundred years ago. Yeah, and take this shit. So you're and it's so it's it's like infantilizing and it's still like keeping, you know, countries and areas of the world that are perceived to be like tribal or less civilized or less together. As like infantile, you know, it's like, no, 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 you can't be responsible with your own cultural artifacts. Only we who stole them in the first place can. And it blows. It's so cool. that even at the time when this was incredibly prevalent, she's like, am I the only one that thinks this is a little fucked up? Like, maybe there's a better way. Like, and she's not saying we can't explore it. We can't research it. She's like, there's a responsible way to do that. There's a way to do it with preserving it. This is why not taking it. I hate the argument of someone being a product of their time because there are so many people at the time right. who were like, no, that's fucked. That no, we shouldn't be doing that. Right. Just saying you're, you're uh, in control. You're responsible for yourself. Right. So Amelia wrote letters um, and campaigned for the society by undertaking uh, lecture tours in England and the United States. She did a series um, of lectures that ended up being rewritten and published as a book called Pharaoh's Fellows and Explorers. Um, And her personality really like shines through. And she in one of her the chapters, which was obviously a speech before she actually chooses to describe um, Hatasu, which is one of the queens of Egypt. Um, and she really dissents and t- like goes against a lot of other Egyptologists who minimize her importance as a queen of Egypt. Um, but people really liked it. And um, she was really able to show her love and knowledge of Egyptology in this collection. And it also gave... Um, Every like you can really tell her ability to communicate clearly, but also hold an audience's interest. Like this is not she's teaching you things, but this is not dry academic literature. Can I also say either the titles of her books are really sexy 
or they're so punny or like they rhyme where she's like a thousand miles up the Nile. And then she's like, Pharaoh's fellas and something else with an Explorers. F. Okay. But still Pharaoh's and fellas, like, come on. She is so clever. Right. She's a little pun queen. I love her. Right. She's she would, like a sexy travel writer who also has a punny edge. I, I don't think a lot of her writing was sexy, but sure, we can go No, with it. it was all sexy. It was all dirty as hell. You just had to be in the right mindset. Okay. Uh, she would also go on to translate a number of works into English, and she would completely give up her successful novelist career to only write on Egypt. Wow. Which is not sexy writing. It's Egypt writing. Egypt is sexy. Mm. Cleopatra is a sex it, symbol. It depends on which parts you're talking about. I'm just um, saying. So she was generally respected and she would receive three honorary degrees from Columbia College, Smith College, and the College of the Sisters of Bethany. She would also re- receive an English civil list pension for her services in literature and archaeology. She would go on to contribute to the ninth edition of the Encyclopedia Britannica to the American supplement of the Encyclopedia Britannica and to the Standard Dictionary. Yep. Holy shit. Yep. She became known to some as the mother of Egyptology. <gasps> oh, we just had a mother of something. Exactly. I like to cover mothers, apparently. Uh, in, in 1892, though, Amelia would catch influenza and die, unfortunately. No. No, um, no, no, no. Rewind, rewrite it, revisions, don't like it. She died near Bristol. Shut the fuck up. She was buried in the churchyard of St. Mary the Virgin in Bristol. Shut the fuck up. Where her grave is marked by an obelisk with a stone ankh at the foot of it. Um, Dude, she and Princess Caribou are buried in the same damn town. So she died on April 15th. Uh, and her grave lies uh, lies alongside her life partner of 30 years, Ellen Drew Brayshire, who died January 9th of the same year. So Ellen died first. And oh, then, and then my Amelia died. God. I love that they were still able to be buried together, yeah, even no. though everyone kind of sucked. Um, in September of 2016, Historic England designated the, gr- uh, the grave a grade two listed as a landmark in the English LGBT history. So Amelia bequeathed her collection of Egyptian antiquities and her library to the University College of London. Um, uh, Most of her money went to the Egyptology fund that she had like set up. Um, And then her dedication to science earned her that. No, I already said that the the mother of Egyptology. Um, Amelia supported Somerville College Library, leaving books to them as well, as well as some of her watercolors. Oh, because her parents didn't want her to do art. And that's so beautiful that she kept illustrating. Um, So in popular culture or her legacy today, in 2012, Amelia was portrayed in the production of Ada in London's Royal Albert Hall. The opera opens with a Victorian, quote unquote, dig among Egyptian tombs. And as the action unfolds, Amelia imagines the plot taking place based on her exploration of the site. Cool. cool. I wonder why it's called Ada. Because it's not about Amelia. Oh. She she was just a character in it. Oh. I don't know. I just feel like she's the star of anything she's in where it's like, hey, I know this isn't her story, but like, why aren't we talking more about her? 
Um, the Egyptologist and novelist Elizabeth Peters or Barbara Mertz, they had both names. I wasn't sure why, uh, named her character Amelia Peabody, which is, so if you've ever heard of the Amelia Peabody books, they're actually really famous. Those are based off of Amelia Edwards or named after her. In 2014, um... A music ensemble called Alarm Will Sound staged a music theater piece called I Was Here, I Was. Sorry, I Was Here, I Was, I. I don't know if that's actually what it's called. Based on Amelia Edwards' A Thousand Miles Up the Nile at the Temple of... So, at the Temple of Dendur in the Metropolitan Museum of Arts. It was written and directed by Nigel Maester. Don't know who that is. And then there was a one-woman show based on Amelia's life called Hers Was the Earth, written by Kim Hicks, that was performed at the Petrie Museum, like, named for her friend. Aww. Um, and that was during the 2011 International Women's Day. That's actually very sweet. I like that. Yeah. Also, so, she's still remembered um, by people he, who know her. He got a museum, but she didn't. You know, she was like, I don't know, doing a thing, being like a really big deal. It's probably because he was actually over there like digging and shit okay um for anyone who's into downton abbey crap i can't remember what the building is actually called uh but the person who owned it or like one of the people in that family they were like an amateur egyptologist and uh, they were like doing some renovations and they cracked open a wall and they found a mummy and a bunch of other egyptian artifacts just like in the fucking wall and they're like uh (laughs) can you imagine like, like, there's the big joke about, like, oh, you're doing renovations, throw, like, a cheap Halloween skeleton. No, there's a legit person in your wall, and it's I mean, not a murder. At least like, wrapped like a mummy. It's a little, a little bit better. It's just weird that it's not a murder. It's like, okay, if I'm I mean, going to find a know, li- How do you know that he didn't murder someone and just wrap them up like a mummy and then just put it with a bunch of other Egypt shit? You and don't know that. That's why all your favorite characters died on Downton Abbey. That that person is like, fuck this place. All of it. (sighs) So, Emily, what are you thankful for? Well, I know your laptop died. Not the fact that I have to do a hearsary happenings after this. My laptop died and I might have to do it off of my cell phone. I mean, we can always do it another week. No, no, nope, nope, nope. No procrastination. We're already putting off one thing. Um, I am very thankful. I had the opportunity to be an election judge in our state's primaries. And that was exciting. Uh, it was exhausting. I was up at like 4.30 in the morning. And there are people that do that from 6 until the ballots are submitted at like 10.30. Like it is all is goddamn like day. people though? I was definitely the youngest okay. person there. Um. That being said, I don't care how retired I am. I don't want to be up and working that long all goddamn day. Uh, But it was really cool. Uh, Everyone was very nice and helpful. Um, I felt really good because in an environment where all the issues feel so big and so out of control, you know, at the very least, you can go to your polling place and just make it a positive, welcoming and accessible experience for people. Right. That's all like, and that's awesome. Yeah. And it I doesn't agree. matter how anyone's voting. It's that you are there ensuring that they can. Yeah. And that is amazing. And like, I registered some first time voters, which Aww. was really exciting. I like, I, I had a tablet that like helped me look everyone yeah. and record everything. And by the time I ended, 
I had served 195 people, which I was very so proud of. So were you of. like standing, sitting? I was sitting, thank God. So I was the person that like checked in voters. Yeah. And then, because our, our polling place was serving two districts, so we had to let them know like, okay, this, or precincts. Yeah. And so it's like, oh, you're this precinct, you're this precinct, blah, 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 blah. Um, it was also like... No one was shitty, uh, which That's I good. I wasn't really expecting. But then some of the uh, it's not like a presidential election. Well, it's some a of little the lower stakes, some of the other election judges who had worked the last presidential election were talking about people coming in and like just starting to scream at everyone or like not wanting to put their ballots in the machine and wanting to take them home. It's like, you know, that's not how it's going to get counted. Though. Like, what, who you, you mail that to some what? What is happening? Like, and I'm just like, holy shit, you gotta be, you know, everyone's actually very nice and very positive. It might just be because it wasn't like a presidential election. Yeah. Like people feel like it's lower stakes. Yeah. Uh, Apparently for a primary, there was an incredible turnout. People are really fired up. And honestly, it's good to see people caring enough to go and vote. Like, that made me feel really good. But, yeah, I, I definitely went in, and I was very anxious. Because, you know, it's kind of like that whole, like, I've never done this before. I don't know what I'm doing. But I got really into it, and it felt really good just to be like, hi there. How are you today? Oh, my God. Can I get your last name? Okay, awesome. You know, like, okay, here's your slip. It was just nice to be nice to people, you know? Yes. It was it was a good feeling. I also ran to my old high school swim coaches who were very excited to see me. Oh, I was a cool. little stressed out because um, they, they, they came in separately. So the first one was my my uh, male high school swim coach. And I was like, oh, my God, you used to be my swim coach. He's like, oh, yeah, Emily. And I'm like, oh, crap, that's not good. You shouldn't recognize me. It's been way too long since high school. <laughs> I think I was kind of a pain in the ass. It's fine. It's fine. I was the person who's like, my shoulder hurts, my knee hurts, my hip hurts. But that's because I have all these physical problems that I've needed surgery for. So it's fine. It's totally on the hips. Yeah. And then uh my my second high school swim coach, who is the the male coach's wife, uh, she's like, she works at my gym actually, but I've never run into her because she teaches a six AM class. She should come to my six AM class. I'm like that's too early for as me. great as that sounds that's about a half hour before my alarm goes off and about the time my cat is scratching the living fuck out of me because he wants me to feed him so i'm gonna say no <laughs> but yeah i don't know that was that was nice yeah yeah and i i felt i felt good um if they asked me to work the presidential election i totally will or the the prime presidential no. primary the prime yeah no the the one coming up in November. Was that the primary? This was a primary. What? Yeah, but I thought it wasn't this for like Senate or something? No, this was this was this was determining who is actually going to be on the ballot in November. Yeah, it must be like Senate because it's not presidential. No, no, absolutely not. But we have there every two years. They're, they're, oh, midterms. Yeah, it's midterms. Fucking A, Emily. Okay. But it is that it can replace Senate and Congress seats, I believe. It can. Uh, yeah, absolutely. It's not a presidential election, but it's the midterms. Anyway, if they ask me to do that, I totally will. Uh, I'm not going to do all day. Six to two thirty was about as much as I could stand. I was so tired. Like, I was how just did like, you even I'm get ready into for that? a nap. I signed up online. 
Well, I Googled it uh, around the time of the last presidential election because, again, I was feeling very out of control. And I just wanted to do something positive, like to help the whole system in general. And again, like as an election judge, you're not pushing your own agenda. You're not. Right, you're just there to help people. I just wanted to help facilitate the entire process. Um, and of course, they had they had enough people. And then I got an email and I got like two more emails before I finally saw them where they're like, hey, do you want to fucking do this or not? And I was like, oh, shit. And I did the online training and signed up and everything. So you can totally look it up if you want. Yeah, I might. Yeah. So, Kelly, what? what are you thankful for? I was kind of hoping you Democracy. Forget. Democracy. Democracy! It was so exciting to, like, help the first-time voters and, like, get them all registered. And, like, they're so, they're babies, Kelly. They're just a little baby. Little 18-year-old babies. Democracy! I'm always having way too many feelings. I'm having so many feelings. And I just kept thinking, like, every time a woman came in, like, there was, a, okay, there was a time when you weren't allowed to vote and I wouldn't have been allowed to work here. This is so beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> and, like, women of color came in. I'm like, honey, you don't even know. It's so beautiful that you're voting right now. Because <laughs> this is, people fought for this shit. Emily was, like, probably having, like, a breakdown. I was very smiley and positive. I didn't have my breakdown until after this very moment. <laughs> but I, you know, like doing this podcast, yeah, you, you you learn about all the historical context and everything that had to be fought for and sacrificed, and it just it makes it, some of this stuff so yeah. much more meaningful. It really just colors how you see the world. Even 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 men being able to vote, whether they're men of color or non like not non land owning men. men. Like, just the fact that people can come in and and just have the right to vote. And it should be a right. It shouldn't have been something people had to fight for. I don't know. It just, it makes me, it makes me feel all kinds of feelings. Are you okay over there? I'm going to want to cry. Tell me what you're thankful for. I don't know. God damn it, Kelly. <laughs> like, I mean, like, I, I'm trying to think of something that I haven't said before. You know? Uh, are you thankful for me? I mean, yeah. But In my I've, wine I've cries? I've said that before. Doesn't mean, like, you can't still be thankful for me. I am thankful for you. All the time. Are you thankful for you're not doing a history happenings after this? Except we are. I still have to be here for it. No, but you don't have to actually do anything. Yeah, but I want to go to sleep. <laughs> I also want to go to sleep, but we also need to get this shit done. Uh, I also need, to, need a little time to sober up so you can't sleep anyway. I mean, I could just, like, leave you out there. No. No, I will crawl into bed with you, bitch. I mean, I, that's fine, too. <laughs> uh, it wouldn't be the first time. <laughs> I said I was thankful for you. Moving oh, on. Oh, shit. Okay. Anyway... If you want to see like all the weird facial expressions and, and the weird, crying. oh my God, there was a lot of visually going on here today. If you want to see this crazy shit, subscribe to it as a patron. Join the funerary cult for as little as $1 a month. $1. Ooh, you might One, get some 3D not, not action. One. 3D. Ooh. Uh, also, like us on Facebook at Whiny About Herstory, Instagram at WAH Pod, Twitter at WAH underscore pod our website is whiningbutterstreet.com where you can get our merch see all of the different places we are yeah 
Also, raise five stars wherever you listen. Five stars. Five stars. Get that sweet-ass merch. We have new designs out. Uh, We still have our pro-choice designs. The proceeds are are no longer being donated, but you can still get them because they're fucking sweet. Every season is good for Riot Girl Summer, goddammit. Yeah. It is always Riot Girl Summer. Or descending. Because I'm hot and angry. Or rage, rage, fucking raging. <laughs> I am also fucking angry. I am also fucking raging all the time. Anyway, thank you so much for listening to another episode of Whiny About Herstory. I'm Emily. I'm Kelly. And y'all have an empowered day. Bye. Bye.